No one had to tell me, David doesn't look good, but I don't think you're going to make this one. I knew it was over. I couldn't speak their language that well, just enough to interrogate and find out where the Viet Cong were, but I didn't. I didn't speak their language well. They didn't even know my name, and I'm dying for them. And the thought went through my mind. Maybe that's the tiniest little clue of how Jesus felt hanging on a cross, dying for people that didn't even know his name. They couldn't speak his language, but he spoke theirs. Some of you may have been able to follow our ministry because some of you over the years have supported our ministry. You may be aware that my wife left me for another man three years ago, and it really tore me up. Uh, I, I know his name. I know where he lives, too. Uh, I do. His name is Jesus. He took her to his place without my permission, and it really ticked me off, and I had a hard time forgiving him, but I got through it. I got over it, and I'm happy to tell you God's a God of second chances, and Friday a week ago, I got married again. What do you think of that? Now that's the way God lets love continue. I married a Marine. She is an amazing woman. Her husband was killed in Afghanistan. The only Air Force pilot, a U-2 spy plane pilot, killed on a combat mission in history. Gave his life for our country. And as a gold star wife, 18 years, she was alone. And we met recently, and just every, like you could smell fire. Boy, it was sparked up. And so we decided we'd get married and finish out this long race of serving God together for the end. I'm telling you that for a reason. For some of you who feel like God is, he's abandoned you, he's left you, he broke his promise that he'd never leave you or forsake you, oh no, give him a little time. Let God be God in your life and he will surpass every brokenness you've ever known. But listen to this statement, it's gonna set the pace. And I'm gonna move this table so I can see it's clock better. It's gonna set the pace for what I wanna say to you this morning. Until you've been broken, well, you can't really be Christ-like until you've been broken. See, no one likes to be broken. Suffering's not something I go looking for. <laughs> Suffering's out there looking for us. Uh, I, I don't run from it, but I don't chase it down. I don't go stand in front of a city bus, get run over so God can give me a testimony. I've had all the testimony I want. I'm just saying that when it comes, embrace it because it's through suffering we learn obedience. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. It's really a tightrope here because some of you may, your favorite evangelist may be one that teaches you if you're sick, you sin, and God's taking it out on you. I thought Jesus paid for my sin. I thought he did that. I, is God double dipping? Took it out on Jesus, now he's going to take it out on us? No, we make ourselves sick. But God's not going to make us sick to teach us something. We, we learn our lessons by self-discipline, unfortunately, if we learn at all. So what I'm going to tell you today is Psalm 119.71 says, I, it's good that I've been afflicted, for I've learned his statutes. So I'm going to talk a little bit about affliction and suffering because it's been part of my life. It started out that way. That birth canal was really difficult. I'm just going to tell you right now. It left me in a, in a pool of tears, not to mention my mom who wanted to kill my dad. But let me quantify that a little further. She almost died. In fact, she was so near death, she couldn't even raise me for years 
I was raised by a Mexican nanny, Maria Rubio from Matamoros, Mexico. She was my mom surrogate. She took care of me, fed me, clothed me, sent me off to school. I was six years old when I, I, I learned English. My first language was Spanish. I was six years old learning English to go to school. I was six years old when they told me I was not a Mexican. That blew my Hispanic mind. I found out for the first time I was not what I thought I was. And that's when the breaking started for a little boy, six years old, first grade. Broke me. They said I cried for weeks because all my friends were Mexican. I grew up in Mexico and on the border with Mexico. My dad was a missionary and pastor. <clears throat> so my life wasn't what I thought it would be. And as I grew older, there were many more breakings to come. Oh, I wish it was one and done. It's not. But there has to be the first of everything, I guess. And it's kind of like when I do these tours across America in a big coach. Uh, I take Highway 80 across or Highway 40 across the plains of America, especially I like it when I'm up in Montana and Wyoming. I see those Mustangs out there running wild in a herd, mane out, tail back, pawing there. Oh, they're beautiful. They're gorgeous, and they're worthless. They make soap out of those little guys. Unless somebody comes along and sees one they really like, and they choose it and adopt it, and then they put a harness on it, and they break it. And once it's broken, it goes from being worthless to priceless. And priceless it is so much that they measure the horsepower under your car by horses, not camel power, horsepower. The animal that is known in American history as probably the most important animal in all of our history has to be broken before it's of any value. And what's the difference in the horse and us? See, we run wild. We're, 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 we run in herds and packs. We do. But until we've been adopted into a family, harnessed and broken, we're worthless. But once we have been broken, and Jesus, who says even of his own life, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Until we've been broken like he's been broken, we're worthless. But once we've been broken, we're priceless. Do you hear me this morning? You're looking at a face that's gone through a lot of surgery. I had 62 operations and two more planned by the end of the year. They're still trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. All the king's horses and all the king's men, and he's got a few horses, I'll tell you that. Yet none of them can do. With all the surgeries can do what Jesus has done on the inside of Dave Reaver already. The scar tissue's gone. It's pliable again. That's the problem with scar tissue. It's, it's defensive. It gets real tough, and it doesn't have elasticity. It doesn't give like it used to, and it protects itself by being harder than normal pliable skin so it won't get hurt again so badly. From my waist up, I'm mutilated, 50% third-degree burn. My face was blown off. Everything covered was what was left. And it was left with second degree burn and granulated back in. If you see it now on my face, it was bone. There's a nickname. I call it fourth degree. I don't think that's a medical term. I could be wrong. I never heard it till lately. But they blew my face off, my fingers, my thumb. These fingers survived. These fingers came off. They were hanging by tendons. This thumb was hanging by the one, one. 
I was trying to throw, for you military, I was trying to throw a white phosphorus hand grenade. Burns it, I've been told, I didn't have a thermometer that day. I've been told it burns at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It was used to melt the engine out of our boats if our boats were at risk of being captured. It burned so hot, and it was in my right hand when I drew back to throw it, and I was in the crosshairs with a sniper, and I didn't know it. And just before I could deliver the grenade, a bullet went through the back of my hand. He was shooting at my head and missed and blew the grenade right here. That's why this is all plastic. My ear. Now, they made me a nose five years ago. Isn't it nice? It's a boy. I'm so proud of it. And I got eyelids back, and I have lips again. They're only five years old. For all the years I scared kids, I didn't mean to, but sometimes it was fun. <laughs> it's amazing what you'll do under the anointing. <laughs> they look at me and scream, and I go, Arr! they'd stand there and pee all over themselves. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's fun. <laughs> Little snots. <laughs> Y'all look at me like, oh, Alice, he lost more in his face. <laughs> he lost his mind. I do not have Dame Bramage. That day in Vietnam, I was serving with the U.S. Navy Brownwater Black Bray as special operations. I was assigned to SEAL Team 1 as a boat guy on a riverboat made of fiberglass. SEAL Team 1 and I worked together for eight months in Vietnam. We got in and out every time. We never lost anybody until the last three days I was in country. After eight months without a scratch, all hell broke loose, and I don't say that cursing because that's what it amounted to. That grenade blew, and I looked down, and I could see my heart beating, and my back was on fire, skin dripping, and shooting blood out of an open artery and lacerated by either the bullet or shrapnel off the grenade. I looked down, my face was on my boots. No one had to tell me, David doesn't look good, but I don't think you're going to make this one. I knew it was over. I couldn't speak their language that well, just enough to interrogate and find out where the Viet Cong were, but I didn't, I didn't speak their language well. They didn't even know my name, and I'm dying for them. And the thought went through my mind. Maybe that's the tiniest little clue of how Jesus felt hanging on a cross, dying for people that didn't even know his name. They couldn't speak his language, but he spoke theirs. And the next thing I know is I'm jumping in the water because I thought water might help, but phosphorus burns in water. I, anything I'm telling you, if, you, if you have any second guessing, just ask the military that are here. I'm not, it sounds out of the realm of truth, but it's true. Phosphorus burns in water. You can't extinguish it. It has to burn itself out. And I jumped the river, and instead of passing out from shock, I, I conscious. This was forced on me by the water. And I was in shock, so I didn't feel anything. I felt absolutely no pain. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? That God would allow me to not be fighting pain while I'm fighting to save my life. I swam across that river. My skin was all around me. I was beside myself. Now, that's funny. Come on. <laughs> I needed to pull myself together. <laughs> I, got, I got others, but... I don't know how far I can go with you. You might, you might get them walk out on some of them here. But uh, I swam up on the bank of the river, and I crawled up on my knees. I looked at the damage. I fell over backwards, and 
they thought I died. The problem with this brownwater blackberry was we were told we had the highest KIA, killed in action per capita, but you couldn't prove it because most of the guys' bodies went down with the boats and until your body's retrieved, even though they know you're dead, you are not listed KIA, you're MIA for a number of years and years before they'll actually admit that you're killed in action or lost at sea, which is the same thing as dead. So. When the grenade wheel fell over backwards, there was a little bit of rejoicing, I think, because they had a KIA and a body to prove it. I wasn't celebrating. There were four of us on that little river boat that day. They called me Dudley Do-Right. Another one called me Dr. Do-Little. Another one called me Preacher Man. I thought that was a compliment. I called them pervert number one, pervert number two, and pervert number three. They thought that was a compliment. They fought over who'd be pervert number one. When they thought I was dead, the things they had said about me when I was living, which was never good, they hated me because I was a pain in their conscience. I kept my vows to God. I kept my vows to my wife. I kept my vows to myself, and it was a pain to them. But when they thought I was dead, they said the nicest things about me. I couldn't tell them I wasn't dead. They would have killed me. <laughs> Helicopter called dust off, landed to pick me up. They rode me on the stretcher. The stretcher caught fire, ripped open, I fell through on my head. Have you ever had one of those days? <laughs> they rolled me up, wet blanks, got me on a stretcher, another stretcher in the helicopter, away we go. Now, that's a long period of time from the explosion until I'm in that helicopter. I've been in general aviation for 45 years, and I'm pretty good at estimating. Looking back, I bet we were about 1,500 feet up when suddenly the shock broke loose, wore off, and I was keenly aware of every nerve of my body screaming in pain. And I screamed voluminously, medic, with what was left of vocal cords that were scorched and all the hair follicles that pushed moisture out were burned out of my bronchial tubes. Yet I got the word medic out. Scared the guy so bad he almost jumped out of the helicopter. Lost control of the helicopter. Pop didn't. I thought, oh Lord, we're gonna crash and I'll be the only survivor. They got me to Saigon. I'm rushing through some of this to get to my points I want to make at the end of this. They got me through to Saigon and then to Japan in a big hospital jet. And in Japan, I really stupidly asked for a mirror, and they really stupidly brought one. I looked up in the glass of my good eye, and I remembered what I had just a shadow of a memory of when the grenade blew. I looked down and saw my face. I remember, and I'm going to turn my timer off so I don't go too long. I remember what I thought. The last words I said to my little teenage wife, who I fell in love with when I was 16, I asked her to marry me when I was 16. She slapped me. She was 13. She said, I'm only 13 years. I said, but you have the body of a 14-year-old. She slapped me again. Her dad, Mr. Smith N. Wesson, said no, and I listened to him. But when we got married, as soon as she graduated from high school, we got married the the last thing she said to me when I went to Vietnam was, Davey, are you coming back? That haunted me for eight months. And on the day of my injury, it came alive again. And that day in Japan, when they held that mirror over my face and I could see where my face had been, this was swollen to my shoulder, this was skull. I could look down and see all my esophagus and moving parts inside my chest. I remember that last question. Are you coming back? And my response, 
I'll be back without a scar. Why did I say that? I could have just said, I'll be back. <laughs> then I could be governor of California. Bad joke. You'll get it later. Pastor will explain it better, Lucy. So I remembered that promise. And what I saw was a mutilated face. Only I saw a broken promise. And that broken promise hurt more than all. The pain. I had known. So I decided I'd take it out of God's hands. I would take it out of my precious doctor's hands. I took it out of my tender conscience and destroyed it that day. I decided I'd take my life, and I tried. I pulled the tube out. I had no gun or knife, and the only thing I could see was what was keeping me alive. Just pulled the tube, and I did. I laid my head back, and I waited to die. I got hungry. <laughs> Wrong tube. I pulled out lunch. That wasn't my life dripping on, that was my lunch dripping on the floor. They made new orifices in my body that day. They tore me, those doctors were so mad at me. They decided they'd put me on the plane, let me die on the plane home to punish me. They took my last well and testament, put me on an airplane, sent me to Lackland Air Force Base, put me on a helicopter, flew me to Brook Army Medical Center. I was there for a year and two months. 13 surgeries before I left the hospital. Everybody in my room died. I'm the only survivor. I remember the day they let me in, put me in that room to let visitors come in. A woman walked in to her husband who was in the bed next to mine. He was 100% third degree. No chance whatsoever. My TBI put me in that room because they said I'd never live with 50% third degree in TBI. They said, as, and the internal damage of inhaling the flame he said, I'd never live. That woman walked in, took her ring off, threw it on the bed, and said to him, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. I almost died. I couldn't. In fact, I expected the same from my little teenage wife. As that woman walked out, a little teenage girl walked in. I read her lips, and she said, Doc, that's not my husband. And my heart wanted to stop. Nothing ever hurt so bad. She stood at my bed and said, Doc, Maybe this is. She looked in my good eye. You know, some people say the eyes are the windows of the soul. She looked in the window of my soul and saw the furniture that was left. The house was different. But something inside was the same. She said, Doc, this is Dave. She bit down and kissed all that's left in my face. I said, I'm sorry. She said, welcome home. I said, I'm sorry, baby. I can't look good for you anymore. That broken promise, I'm trying to make up for it. I can't look good for you anymore. She said, baby, you never were good looking. <laughs> Listen to you. Y'all are cold. left that hospital with a dream that God could take a broken vessel no matter how horrible he looked. One eye, one ear, one nostril, flying purple people eater and use him? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? They call me all over the world not because I'm good looking, that's for sure. They don't call me because of my incredible military strength. I have to sit down to talk. They don't call me because of my academic achievements. I was in the top 10% of the lower one-third of my class. I majored in math and found out five out of four people don't even understand fractions. If you didn't understand that, you were in my class. 
They don't call me because of who I am. They call me because of whose I am. I belong to Jesus. So whenever tough times come, don't throw up your hands and quit. Don't walk out on God. He's not walking out on you. Don't leave him. He's not leaving you. Hang in there because the best is yet to come.